Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello, and I'm excited for you today because you get a little bit of a treat on the Global Medical Device Podcast. My guest is Mike Drews. Yeah, you've, you've probably listened to Mike and I chat about a few things, regulatory design and development quality related in the past, and today certainly is no exception. But today we give you a little bit of a, of a preview, a sneak peek, so to speak, of topics that Mike and I will be talking about live at MDNM East here in a few weeks in uh, New York. So that MDNM East event is June 13th through the 15th, and Mike and I are speaking as part of the design control track on June the 14th. And so today, Mike and I talk a little bit about when design input requirements go wrong, and then we also dive a little bit into the topic of design your labeling like you design your device. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, John Spear. I'm excited today for a couple of reasons. First reason is my good friend, Mike Drews, is joining me on the Global Medical Device Podcast. You know Mike from previous episodes. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences, and man, he is world-renowned expert on a lot of things regulatory related for medical device companies. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you and your audience. All right. And the second reason I'm excited is is Mike and I are going to talk today about one of my favorite topics. And for those of you that know me uh, just a little bit, you probably have picked up that one of my favorite topics uh, revolves around design controls. What is all that about? And you know, the good news, the exciting news for those of you listening, here in a few weeks, you can have an opportunity to hear both Mike Drews and myself talk about design controls, along with a number of other uh, great folks, experts in this space, at the upcoming MDNM event in uh, June 13th through the 15th. And both Mike and I are going to be talking about various topics on June the 14th. So you want to check that out. In fact, Mike, I thought it might be a good idea if we gave the the listeners a bit of a teaser of some of the things that we're going to talk about in uh, June. I think that's a great idea, John. And to start out, one of the things that you're going to be talking about is the importance of design inputs. Oh, yeah. So for those in the audience that are not familiar, maybe you can give us all a quick primer on what design inputs are and why they're important. Oh, absolutely. If design controls is is a topic that I enjoy, getting into the details of design input requirements is is one of those those passions that I have because you know, design inputs it is a, a part of the design control process, but in my opinion, getting your design inputs correct sets the stage for everything that you do in the entire design and development process. And if, let's say it another way, if, if you don't do a good job defining your design inputs, your product development efforts are going to be problematic. You're probably going to reach delays. You're probably going to have to redo some things. Honestly, it's probably going to mean that your project is going to take longer than you had hoped. So 
think of design inputs as the requirements, the things that your product must do. Think about performance criteria and, and things of that nature. You know, so it's really describing, like I said, just the requirements of your device. Well, that's a great start, John. And from your vast experience, where uh, do design input requirements typically come from? Well, this is the beautiful thing. I mean, design inputs are, you know, keep an open mind to this. I mean, it's oftentimes I think one of the mistakes that I've seen companies make is that they they look to the engineering or the technical folks to establish the requirements of the device or the design inputs of the device. And while, of course, there is a strong technical component to that, you should be broader than just the technical side. You should bring in functions like marketing and regulatory and quality and manufacturing, you know, get a cross-functional view of, of who is going to be involved throughout the design and development of this device, but also eventually the manufacturing, the sales and distribution of the product as well. And all of these different resources will help provide design inputs. Other sources. You know, that's a very interesting yeah. uh, response, John. You you certainly ticked off a lot of the the very important functional areas that we should certainly consider. But interestingly enough, you left off what I think was uh, was the most obvious, and what some people might say the the most important. I'm not sure if you did it on on purpose or perhaps just uh, by accident. But do you know which one I'm referring to? Well, I was going to say, well, after you said that, I'm thinking maybe the end user, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there maybe. you go. The, the, the <laughs> clinician, the, the, you know, what it, what it is that we're, we're trying to solve here. And, and the reason why I bring that up, John, is because in my experience, and I would love to hear uh, you chime in on this. I'm not sure if you're going to get to this level in your MDNM presentation or not, but Typically, the, the, the initial design input comes from the clinician. You know, in the medical device industry, a physician will usually say, this is a pretty good device, but if you make it a little longer, a little shorter, a little fatter, a little thinner, you know, I can use it to do something else. Um, uh, but the underlying assumption there is that the physician or clinician or surgeon or nurse or whoever is your end user um, actually knows what it is that they need. Mm. And in my 25 years of playing this game, I've learned not to make that assumption because they often think they know what they need, right. uh, but they don't necessarily know what they really need. Now, I have a litany of examples, but um, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, John. Well, I, I definitely agree and have dealt with that scenario quite a bit as well. And, and I hearken back to one of the uh, first few projects that I worked on and it's uh, physicians and, and clinicians they're 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 very good especially those who are inventive in nature and problem solvers by nature and uh, i remember one of the first projects i worked on a, a doctor gave me a prototype something that he had kind of cobbled together or hacked together through different parts and pieces and components that he had and at his at his disposal and so he built this prototype to solve this problem and i just took what he what he provided me at face value. I, I didn't, you know, and this is a mistake, folks. Don't don't hear this as a best practice. This is something that I learned the hard way. But I took that prototype and I I just decided, oh, well, I'm a smart engineer. I, I can define all the technical requirements and criteria behind this. And so I went and defined all these requirements, all these design inputs. And 
put my head down and built some, you know, iterated and built some additional prototypes. And then at some point in time in the process later and much, much later in the process, I came back to the physician and, and let's just say I missed the mark, you know, cause I didn't keep that end user, that physician in mind the whole time. I just basically tried to regurgitate uh, what the, uh, the, he, had, what I thought he had given me at the beginning of the project. And I really didn't understand what that was all about, what he was trying to communicate. Well, that's a great example, John, a terrific lesson to be learned for the audience. Let me also share one from, from my experience. One of the adages that I, that I frequently share, and I'm sure I've said this in, in our discussions before, is that answers are only as good as the questions that we ask. For sure. So in other words, what good is getting the right answer if we're asking the wrong question? Or put in a slightly more engineering vernacular, problem, uh, I'm sorry, solutions are only as good as the problems that we define. So once again, what good is getting the right solution if we're solving the wrong problem? Unfortunately, this happens in medicine a lot. And in my opinion, as you and I have talked about before, John, this is something that's really not addressed in the regulation or in the design controls, um, quite frankly, at all. Um, and here's a quick example. So it's one thing for a cardiologist to say, this is a pretty good stent, but if you make it a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, I can use it to do something else. It's quite another thing for a, for a cardiologist to say, this is a pretty good stent, but if you take a gene that can turn off hyperplasia and put that inside of a virus and put that on the sur for surface of a stent, now I can use that to do something really different. Mm -hmm. And this gets into the difference between evolutionary versus revolutionary product development and a whole bunch of other things. But um, that, in my opinion, is something that we really don't do uh, as good of a job on as we probably could when it comes to defining our design input requirements. All of the things that you mentioned earlier in terms of manufacturing and marketing and regulatory and so on, those are all very important. There's no question about it. But those are important from a pragmatic sense. Right. Those are really not important from a, mm, let me say, a, 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 a biological or a medical sense. Does that make sense? It, it, it does, yeah. And I, and I think that's where... You know the, the important thing from a from a design input perspective is is this, and you can't just jump into and start defining the requirements or the design inputs of your product unless you first understand the problem, the clinical problem that is trying to be addressed. And to say it another way, you need to have an understanding of of how this product is intended to be used. What are the indications ultimately that you hope to be able to claim about your product? What are the needs of that end user? And once you have a, a grasp or an understanding of the problem that's trying to be solved, then and only then can you do a, a thorough job of defining requirements. But don't just take it at face, yeah, don't just take it at face value. You, you don't just say, well, we're done with the user needs, now let's move on. You may have to revisit that from time to time with the user group. 100% in, agree, in, in agreement with you, John. And um, uh, what you alluded to the e at the end was the last thing I was going to mention, um, and that is, um, unfortunately, many things in regulatory and quality today, including design controls, um, have been become nothing more than tick boxes on a form. And, uh, you know, have we defined our design input requirements. Tick. 
have we, you know, achieved them? Tick. Right. Well, in my opinion, anybody that approaches this uh, as a, as a, you know, in that tick box on a form mentality, um, really, maybe this sounds, this might sound a bit harsh to some people, but they really shouldn't be playing this game. No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, this is, if you're just checking boxes, then you're in the wrong business. I mean, everything that you do during the, the course of design and development and manufacturing of your product, there should be intention behind it. There should be a purpose. If you just feel like you're filling out the form because your procedure says so or because, you know, the, the FDA uh, requires it, then you kind of miss the point. Agreed. And listen, I don't want to steal all your thunder, John. We certainly want the audience to come to your presentation in New York next month. Uh, but any final thoughts that you want to leave the audience on the on design input requirements? Yeah, let me just leave uh, with one kind of parting thought on design inputs. You know, I, I stress the importance of under, being holistic and, and you know, t building on the needs of the end user for just finding your design inputs. The other thing I want you to think about when you're capturing and, cr and defining your design input requirements, I want you to think into the future a little bit. And specifically, I want, to I want you to think about verification, design verification, and, and maybe a little bit of design validation. But I want you to think about how are you going to prove this? You know, and, and this is where a lot of people make mistakes. Is this, you know, if you, you can grasp the holistic nature, you can grasp the, the user needs and, and, and establish a pretty thorough list of design input requirements. But you also need to think about how you're going to prove and how you're going to demonstrate this with clear objective evidence. And sometimes people forget about that. And then they get to the point, you know, a few months down the road where they're going through verification and validation and they realize, Oh crap, I can't verify this. I have to, I have to do it extra special test that I didn't even think about because of the way I, I capture my requirements. So just keep that in mind. Think about how you're going to verify as you're defining your design inputs. Well, I love that message, John, of thinking to the future. And it's interesting because, you know, coming from a quality perspective, as you do, thinking to the future certainly makes sense in terms of verification and validation, testing and that type of thing. But to me, primarily as a regulatory guy, thinking to the future means label expansions. Oh, yeah. And there are a whole bunch of things that we can be thinking about in terms of design and testing methodologies for our current uh, product that will help us tremendously, that will mitigate our workload tremendously, our regulatory burden tremendously for the future. Mm -hmm. But perhaps that would be a topic of a different discussion. Well, perhaps, but we can also segue a bit and, and dive into kind of a, a primer on your topic that you're speaking on at, at MDNM, because if I re recall, you're speaking a little bit about the importance of labeling and, and how labeling should be considered just as, as you would design the actual physical device. Well, that's exactly right, John. I'm going to be uh, doing a presentation also in New York on Wednesday, June 14th, called Designing, Design Your Label Like You Design Your Device. And, um, uh, you know, to me, John, as an engineer, as, as, as most of your audience knows by now, my background is in biomedical engineering. To me, design is design. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm designing a physical widget like a medical device or a clinical trial or a test methodology or product labeling, it doesn't make any difference. Philosophically, design is design. And one of the things I find interesting after my you know, two and a half decades of working in this business is that companies and engineers spend a lot of time obviously designing their physical widget, 
mm-hmm. but they really don't spend very much time designing their labeling. And uh, again, I could give you lots of examples, but I'll give you just one. I was in California not long ago working with a uh, one of the small medical device companies that I work with. They have a medical device that they're in the process of designing and developing. And at the same time they're designing it, uh, they asked me to design uh, four or five high-level labeling statements, indication for use and in- intended use statements, all describing exactly the same device. And what I did was um, I presented a regulatory risk assessment and a regulatory burden assessment of each one. In other words, if you say this about your device, this is what you're going to have to do in terms of testing. This is what you're going to is going to be your regulatory pathway, wellness product, 510K, uh, de novo, what have you. Uh, this is your uh, probability of successfully selling this at the FDA, as opposed to if you say something else about exactly the same device then this is the testing that you're going to have to do. This is the pathway that you're going to have to take. This is the probability that you're going to be successful in selling at FDA. And I presented all of those different options uh, to the senior management of the company, and we had a discussion as to what the company wanted to say Mm -hmm. about their new device. But taking this just one step further, John, we didn't look at it just from a regulatory perspective. We also brought in reimbursement and product liability and oh, other wow. areas as yeah. well. Because one of the things that I've learned in, in, in doing this is that oftentimes what you want to say from a regulatory perspective may be diametrically opposed, maybe 180 degrees out of sync from what you want to say from a reimbursement perspective or a product liability perspective. And I guarantee that one company um, uh, who, you know, who's working on one device may decide to say some one, one thing, whereas another company working on a very, very similar device may decide to say something else. Yeah. And um, uh, so this is a this is a powerful thing that I think a lot of companies don't take advantage of. In part, I think the reason why they don't take advantage of it is because so many medical devices are brought onto the market as a 510K, and using the 510K as an option, you're very, very limited in terms of how mm, creative, shall we say, you can sure. be when it comes to the labeling. Mm-hmm. You're pretty much... I don't want to say you're locked into what the guy said before you, but you have to use something pretty close to that. But if you're willing to consider, for example, other pathways to market like the de novo, um, you know, the de novo gives you a, a blank slate, a blank canvas when it comes to labeling, and you can paint onto that anything that you want. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's important. And, you know, I, I like the, the, the title of this particular session that you're doing, design your labeling like you design your device. And, and it really it dovetails really nicely with, with uh, our conversation of a few minutes ago around design input requirements. You know, think about it another way. And, and I've seen it happen many, many, many times where the engineers get very focused on the design and the requirements of the actual widget or the actual physical device they forget about the labeling, they forget about the packaging, they forget about, you know, those other parts and components that are maybe a little less tangible or something that's not as important. But what goes on that label 
And, and, and labeling folks includes things like the, the label that's on the physical package, but it also includes your instructions for use or your operator's manual. It also includes the information that you're going to have on your website or marketing literature and you know anything that's basically going to talk about that product that uh, it's important to consider the information that's on that label. And so it really becomes something that you should be capturing as part of your design input requirements as well. Exactly, John. And taking that a step further, um, it's not just what you say in all of those different forms of labeling that you just mentioned. It's also how you say it or what you apply. Because another thing that I'm going to be getting into in my presentation in New York next month is how do you say one thing and mean something else? Mm -hmm. Um, in, in, in the regulatory world, one of the, one of the, the mantras that I've adopted is uh, it's not what you say that matters, it's what people hear. Mm-hmm. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. And so this gets into the very nebulous and I think very fascinating area of how do you advertise off-label use. So many people think that you cannot advertise off-label use. Right. The simple reality is it's not true. FDA has put out now three guidances, and there's a fourth one uh, that was supposed to be put out about two months ago, two months from now, but it's on hold because of the the, the new administration. But they have put out three guidances specifically de- telling people how to advertise the off-label use of their product. Mm-hmm. What it really comes down to is how do you define the word advertise? Now, I don't have time to get into the details of that here. Obviously, for people that are interested, you can come to our presentations in New York, but I will say this, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Don't go back to your companies and say, oh, I listened to this wackadoodle Drews guy and he said that we can advertise the (laughs) off-label use of our medical device. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can do it, but if you're going to do it, you have to be very, very careful. You have to know, quite frankly, what the heck you're doing. And you have to be working with somebody that really knows what they're doing and how to do it correctly, because if you don't, and unfortunately, some companies do screw this up. You might find yourself not simply dealing with the FDA, but with the FBI. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, if you think the FDA is tough, the Department of Justice, those folks don't mess around. So it can definitely be done. And now in, uh, you know, with the area of wellness products, um, uh, you can bring devices onto the market without getting any involvement with FDA whatsoever under the category of what's called a wellness product or what I call a wellness exemption, and then use the same device with some beefed-up labeling to go back to the FDA later with a 510K or a DeNovo or something like that. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of devices that I'm working on right now where we have two different versions of the same device. Uh, One is a wellness uh, device, which doesn't have any involvement with the FDA, and the other is either a 510K or a DeNovo, which does. But when I say two different versions of the device, John, the actual device, the physical device, the design, the materials, how mm-hmm. it works, that's all exactly the same. The only thing that's different, the only thing that's different is the labeling, mm-hmm. what we say about it. Sure. In one case, it's a wellness product, and in another case, it's it's a regulated device. Well, I think uh, that's important, and and it's important to understand uh, for for those listening the, the the distinction here. Even though the product is the same, these it has two different indications for use, two two different applications, and 
that's important to understand as part of your design process, especially as you're defining those requirements. Because Mike, I can imagine that that there might be slightly different uh, testing or slightly different verification activities that might be required for each of those different indications. Am, am I correct about that? Yes, you're absolutely correct, John. And I'll give you a quick example as we start to wrap this up. Um, uh, I don't know about in your world, John, but in my world, I have a lot of people who come to me who tell me that their absolutely most important design input requirement is to get this device on the market as quickly and easily <laughs> as cheaply as they can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where in the regulation does that one go, John? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't found it yet, so let me know. <laughs> If where I should look. <laughs> but on a serious note, by designing your labeling, by considering other regulatory options like the wellness exemption, by, as John talked about earlier, uh, carefully considering and defining your um, design input requirements from all of those different functional areas that you jumped, that you listed off, you will certainly minimize the time and effort and money to get your device on the re on the market and perhaps equally if not more important mitigate the risk of screwing something up or making a mistake as i often see people do and having to back up and do something over again right unfortunately that happens time and time again yeah i i wish i had uh, different experiences but you're right mike you're spot on so uh, Mike, any parting words before we wrap up this this session today? No, I think that based on our conversation today, John, I think both of our presentations have a lot of meat on the bone, and I think it will be well worth your audience, especially for those that are going to be in New York anyway for the show. Please stop by. And by the way, um, on a personal note, John, I'm very flattered, um, uh, and I want to thank you and also the people in your audience, because as you know, I do a lot of presentations at different um, uh, conferences and so on. I just did one a few weeks ago and I had several people come up to me and said they're, they're regular listeners to our <laughs> podcast series. Great. So the, the word is getting out. And so uh, I thank you for that. I'm glad oh, somebody's listening. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Mike. And, you know, maybe we, you should bring some uh, glossies and we can have a, a <laughs> Autograph sighting session. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, John. My son <laughs> says that I have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also is that folks, uh, Mike, Drews, and I will be at MDNM East uh, June 13th through the 15th. Actually, you, you, uh, both Mike and I speak on the same day. We're both part of the design control track. I'm uh, talking about when design input requirements go wrong on Wednesday, June 14th. That session's at 9, 10 a.m. Eastern time. And Mike is also in that same track talking about design your labeling like your design, like you design your device. And that's also Wednesday, June 14th. And, and I believe that's scheduled for 11, 15 a.m. Eastern time as well. So come see the show, talk to Mike and I. Uh, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts, your ideas, and uh, appreciate you all listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Before I wrap things up today, let me talk a little bit about Guru. I'm sure many of you have probably consumed content that is available on our website, the webinars, and as Mike mentioned, listen to previous episodes of this podcast. But you should also know that we have a software platform that is designed specifically and only for the medical device industry to address quality management system needs. 
And if your favorite thing is design controls like mine, we've got workflows that are built into the platform to make that process pretty easy that also happen to integrate with ISO 14971 risk management workflows. So you want to learn a little bit more about our platform, be sure to go to greenlight.guru, click on the button to request more information and somebody from our team will be thrilled to talk to you about what you need, what you're looking for, and, and if we might be able to help you. So, uh, Mike, once again, thank you for joining me and uh, look forward to seeing you here in a few weeks. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. All right. And this has been your host, the founder, the VP of Quality and Regulatory, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.